You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. We're here in the lobby at the Detroit Opera House here at CNU24. And I have, uh, what does your tag say from Boston Architectural College in Providence, Rhode Island? That's not how I know you, but uh, <laughs> uh, super uh, Strong Towns member, Seth Zarin. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chuck. It's after, good to be here. After a long, I mean, how many times have we tried like to? Like four, I don't yeah, know. I know. Last so, two years, it's cool. <laughs> you had like important people like Andres Duany to talk to, uh, so it's totally, you know, totally fair. Every now and I'm then. I'm just a guy. No, you're the guy. You and you and Ruben are my two favorite <laughs> commenters. Yeah. Whenever I get... what. Okay, whenever I feel like I get myself intellectually, like in, like way out on a limb where like someone intelligent could come and just saw it off and I would <laughs> like fall, you know, a yeah. long way. You and Ruben like rescue me. Yeah. You, you, you're, you're there. You're like my support group in many ways. Well, thanks, Chuck. Yeah. Well, you know, the Strong Towns world has been a support group for me as I've been wrestling with my relationship with the city for a long time. And, uh, it's such a great community of, of thinking as well as practice. To me, it's like, it's kind of what brought me actually back to CNU is just like, oh, here's the intellectual foment. Here's yeah. like, you know, we have our arguments, you know, there's lots of stuff you and I probably disagree about, but <laughs> we do it in a way we're always learning from each other. And yeah. that's like the part that's awesome. Right. You know, that's like the really fast, fast, fantastic part of, of this community, of the Strong Counts community and of larger CNU is that. I really feel like we're actually, you know, compared to like going to an APA event. So I'm like a recovering planner, you right. know, <laughs> in that world. Right. It's like, you know, you go and you hear the thing and it's just, it's just, there's nothing going on. It, it, it no is so energy. Let me, let me like, l- let's rip on APA just for a sec. <laughs> I'm <laughs> no longer an APA member. I got rid of my membership. I know you still have yours. I am just cause I have the AICP and my wife would be really mad at me if I did. You know, she's <laughs> like, you worked so hard for that. So, um, I'm like, no, not really, but <laughs> Uh, I, I, I got a degree, so I qualified. Um, yeah. okay. When, when you, and it's been a while since I've been to APA, so I will cut them some slack and sure. say maybe the national conference has changed, but the national conference, you know, for, for the years that I did go was you go and sit yeah. and listen to someone tell you something that, you know, like a, 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 a consultant promoting the great project they did. They yeah. don't tell you about the bad things that yeah. happened, just how great it was. Yeah. Or you go to some session where it, it, you're, you're really getting like the USA Today version of, you know, whatever the topic is. So a couple charts and, yeah. you know, happy things. You come here, you're getting at CNU this like tumult it, yeah. it, it, it almost like it thrives on the the edge the, the edginess the the conflict the the places like yep. the stuff we agree on like why bother going right. and rehashing that right there's a track for people who are like introducing okay help me rip on apa then no i, mean, I, mean, am, I am i in this no I, I i totally agree and actually last year at cnu late night while drinking as we do at cnu right george proakis from the planning director for somerville you may have encountered along yeah, the way yeah. it's awesome and I are, and Sarah Lewis are sitting around a table and we come up with this idea for an APA session in the, the, for the, the local, con- the regional conference. Okay. And the deadline's the next day. So George <laughs> goes back and like before noon writes up this thing and I like, yeah. we all like in a daze and resumes or something. And, and 
somehow miraculously we get this thing and then we show up and what the way we presented our session was is basically like me as the evil developer george is the city official trying to figure out how to like manage this this idea in a lot of cities that they want some sort of basically developer kickback they want like community benefits on top of whatever the zoning regulations are so they you know right. in addition to getting to build your building you're going to pay for an arts program or the park or there's something some other gimme that you're going to get and the problem is is that even if you have a predictable zoning ordinance as long as the community thinks that there's going to have a special negotiation with every developer you still don't have a predictable process because right. you don't know whether you're paying for a crosswalk or a swimming pool right <laughs> it's like as a developer right. you can't plan around that and, and sarah was our like moderator and it was great because we just like, had this like riotous debate it was very it was very like yeah, cnu style we're like right. yelling at each other like no yeah. you're wrong you know it's yeah it's and great. everybody there and everyone loves it no, yeah. they were freaked out and they loved it and <laughs> like, it was are you supposed like, to do this here and, and we got like crazy high recommendations because yeah. like we were real people talking about real things and, right and the fact that we like we come in with like we don't know how to solve this problem we are we hear like some ideas they have problems we don't like all of the like them like how do we start to and i feel like that's what we do here too it's like right. people bring challenging questions how do we do x you know because while we agree on a lot of stuff and and some of that stuff i think we're probably really right about there's so much more every time you turn a page you just ask new questions you know right. it's like how do we actually do this like so we got this answer now how do i how do i get my city council to approve it how do i get my engineer to agree to how do i fund this yeah thing? Let, let me let me put it this way and tell me if you agree i, I feel like at apa a, a lot of what we're talking about is like codified law yeah and here we're talking about, you know, where should jurisprudence go? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what what are the issues we should be digging into and right. exploring? And and to me, that's like a, you know, one, the, the APA is almost like a caretaker conversation yeah. where this is like the revolutionary yeah. conversation. And and that's fine. It's good to have them. I mean, it, I use the term saving the world as a team sport. Yeah. You know, and when I, just when I was teaching, I had students who were like, would, would two things. One, they would be like, I, there's so many things to do. How do I pick one? I, I should be doing all these things. And I was like, chill out. Right. But also, you know, <laughs> yeah. saving the world is a team sport. Like, like you, you, there are more things to do that are helpful than you can do or would be good at doing. Right. And so part of what you have to recognize is that you can play different positions. So like in a team sport, you got some people that are there playing offense, some people are playing defense, some people are doing special teams, some people are just there for a weird little purpose, some people are there just to be a jerk right. and beat other people up. You yeah. know, and so yeah. when you think about it, like to move the ball forward, as long as you all sort of see each other on the same team, you can really be collaborative and effective. But what often happens is is that we like get up in each other's business because you're not trying to save the world the same way I'm trying to save the world. Right, <laughs> like, right. Chill right. out, guys. Like there's chill a lot out. of different yeah. opportunities. And part of what I like about what we do at Strong Towns is there's this there's this recognition that you know we're all coming from crazy different backgrounds. It's probably one of the most diverse group of, <laughs> of people yeah. <laughs> uh, in this world. And I think we broadly recognize that we, we share these principles and we're and the principles are still sort of in discussion and dispute, but like, right. but we recognize each other as like co-participants in this process. And we're not all going to become like city managers. That's like the objective is not to train a, a cadre of city managers to Absolutely. go run towns. You right. know, it's like, right. it's going to be so much more than that. I think, I think that was the turning point for me was when I realized that I, this wasn't going to be a movement of professionals yeah. and it wasn't going to be a movement of politicians but it's going to be a movement of people who really just want to broaden the conversation. 
and and just want to create space for people to to talk about and do things differently. Well, and that makes a lot of sense to me too, because you know when I as I transitioned into becoming a you know a, a certified professional, I was never certified, but uh, certifiable maybe. I was a zoning planner, <laughs> so I like I wrote zoning ordinances and I wrote zoning opinions, and yeah. I was like deep in the weeds on like your kitchen expansion, right? You know, to the regional mall, like we did everything in between, right? And it's super yeah. detailed and super insane. And in that process, I realized like how crazy. This, what this professionalization has done, like the reason that you need to do that with Strong Towns yeah. is because in the process of professionalizing the building trades and the, and the whole, just the whole city, right? You need like sign and stamp plans to build a shed right. with six months of public hearings. Right. And that's crazy. That's crazy. And, and what's, it's created is this gulf. So there's like, I don't know, some people over here who build cities, you know, and, and, and it's not a class thing because there's developers and bankers and electricians, but these people all sort of vaguely understand about how cities get built and changed. And there's this huge gulf. And then there's everybody else who consumes the city that's built for them by those people. Right. And because of that licensure and professionalization gulf, a lot of people for a long time rationally have felt very disempowered in the city. Right. And so for me, I, I see kind of our biggest challenge in some sense is this sort of political, cultural, almost education process of being like trying to help people have agency again yeah. to realize that they actually can help shape the city over time. Well, I wrote that piece a couple of weeks ago. Engineers should not design yeah. field streets. And it, it's been incredible to me. I, I think a lot of like our audience is like, yeah, of course. Yeah. You know? Right. But, but it's got picked up by a bunch of oh, yeah. uh, engineering groups and I got brought into a couple of those conversations and it's, it's no, this is like giving children guns, you know, like how could we do this? Well, and as you say with, you know, you were just saying earlier before this podcast, like at some point kids might need to learn to use guns, right? you know, like <laughs> maybe it's not at three, right. but maybe it's at 14 or right. whatever. Right. And, you, you know, same with knives gun and safety course. And yeah. You know, you right. can do that. Like it's, yeah. it's possible, yeah. you know, right. um, but we've we've taken the tool the toys away and and we've made ourselves fragile politically culturally right. exactly I, I, I want to I, I want to give people a little bit of background <laughs> you, you you live in the northeast yep um, and you your first career was as a as a planner yeah a zoner is that a fair yeah sure okay yeah, I was when I did talk a little zoner. bit about where you live and and, and that evolution yeah. well so uh, my evolution is a little complicated in the last year. I've done a lot of things. Don't get there yet. Yeah, Because okay. I want to get to the, oh, okay. the, the second Yeah, so my second, my, my recovering part of the plan. Right. No, I mean... No, I want to set you up as evil first. Okay, good. No, no. No, I mean, it's not evil because, like, it's, it's totally rational in No, but way. you, I think you and I had the same kind of transition where, yeah. like, you were trying to, for me, I was trying to do I was trying to make. It, I was trying to make it better. I was trying to make the world yeah. better by being a good engineer, a good planner, and then I realized that I was... And that's why I use the term recovering because it's like, and I feel like over the last three or four years, I've had to sort of unlearn a lot of the impulses that I had going into being a planner. So as a zoner, as you say, you know, my job was to write zoning ordinances, to make them better. And I had, you know, I knew all the language. We were going to do all this good hippie progressive stuff. It was going to be great, right? And you were going to be a boring zoner. You were going to be a great zoner. No, I was putting pictures. Yeah, no, exactly. We We were totally on board with doing it. All this good stuff. And, you know... The, the biggest challenge I think that we encountered as we started doing this stuff is that no one prepares you to do politics. And so we were just getting, <laughs> oh, really? we were just getting kicked. <laughs> like, you know, we were just like not, we were like, here's the technically right solution. And then they were like, well, you know, basically as I tell anyone who's looking at public policy programs, I'm like, forget your public policy analysis course. I've never seen anyone make a law right. or decision based on 
like a statistical regression. Right. Never happened. I no. mean, it's, it's uh-uh. you know, my cousin doesn't like it. You backstabbed me that other time. <laughs> oh, my friend over here does like it, so it's fine. In my town, I remember you from high school. <laughs> yeah, no, it, but, but actually, like, that no, has it happened. No, it is. It's seriously. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, the, the, the challenge, the thing that I sort of realized as I was doing it for a long time is that is there's the great risk of trying to be really good at planning master planning kind of comprehensive design is, is that you, you do find the right answer. That's the thing that scares me the most. Like what if you actually did come up with like the perfect scenario and you implemented it and it, and it was successful Yeah. because if, if that's even possible, which is probably not, but, but even the pursuit of it suggests that other people's ideas are like uh, a, a mutation, a negative, like a, a decline from the ideal. They'll, they'll taint the ideal. And so yeah. it, you know, even if you're doing great stuff, like objectively, the outcomes are awesome. But like the the long term political and social implications disempower people, right? Um, and it and it teaches them sort of this fragile helplessness that they can only express by sort of rage and, and nimbyism and other things that because they don't have any other tools. Right. Well, fair enough. That's the only tools we've given you. Well, they, um, they showed the plan yesterday in the opening plenary. I, I don't know if you're here yeah. for that, but they they showed the plan of Detroit. Yeah. And I looked at it and I thought that that's brilliant, but that's what a planner used to be. They would lay like create this right. framework. So, so yeah. So, so cities used to be built more or less the following way, right? You had some king or priest or some some person, right? right. Says we're going to build a city here, and they lay out some streets. Maybe they build a wall, and there's like a couple civic buildings, like you know, there's a stadium and a bathhouse or whatever, and yeah. and pretty much then there's you know within those blocks, people just built stuff, right. you know, and that so it's a sort of. We talk about subsidiarity or recursive or sort of ecological model. Like the city, it's not that there weren't plans. I mean, there were plans, but they were plans that had like 50 streets on them and a wall. Right. You know? Right. (laughs) And they didn't tell you where the candle making district was going to be. People sort of figure that out. And it's, it's hard for us to release that control because in the industrial revolution, we had so many noxious interactions and bad stuff that like there's, there's a good reason why we did all this stuff. But you know, if you go to a city that, never that was built before the sort of modern conceptions of cities and you know that could be in europe it could be in india it could be in africa it could be even in south america people's the, the, they have that iterative tradition when, when i was teaching abroad i was teaching urban planning and development internationally and we're in we're actually in senegal at this time in in uh, dakar and i'm teaching a unit on community engagement you know this is my like i i have this little triptych which is like you got the uh the you know, the Robert Moses, big master plan, great man theory of city building. And then you've got this Jane Jacobs community planning, like backlash response. And then that maybe goes too far. And now we're in this model where the only people who are making any real plans are private developers because cities are neutered right. and, the, and the public doesn't have the resources or scope to, to be proactive typically, right. typically reactive. So this is, but, and so I'm, I'm in here in Dakar, I'm teaching this thing. And, I, and part of the thing I'm showing them is like, look how this is evolving. It's really cool. There's this tactical urbanism thing that we've been working on in the United States for a couple of years now. I give them this book and they're like, this is super awesome. It's really great. But also like I walked down the street this morning and I saw some guys, like they were just building a thing in this, like on the sidewalk. And, and, and we're like, it's like the hipsters like rediscovered city making that everyone else has just been doing for 2000. It's like when we invented right, farmer's markets right, and actually right. no. People no, just have markets. No, we didn't invent farmers' like, markets, like, right? We're just trying to recover in a sort of <laughs> haphazard, weak sauce version yeah. of like, you know, it's like if you have someone come from India to the United States and they right. see your farmers' market, they're like, this is, how is this notable? This is like every, every day <laughs> right. on this main street. Was, we just have was, farmers and they come and they sell Andres. their food. It's like, 
I, I, I think it was two years ago at a CNU that Andre said, you know, we hear, we cheer and applaud the street bench. Yeah. That in any other like European city would be so like common and blase yeah. that it would go unnoticed. Yeah. And but here we have like celebrations because well, we were able to put in a bench. But, but part of it is because it, it took market. five years to put that bench in. Right. Which is the same time it took to win World War II. Right. So you think about like no. the scale of our ability to act. It's let me so... ask you, let me ask you a question on that statement. Sure. Because that is a, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you. Sure. Without getting political, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you like a political S question. Cool. Because that is a statement that you often hear from like candidates who are anti-government like oh it took eight years to you know to uh you know put in uh do the environmental review for this whatever and you know in that period of time china built 20 cities right that is that's the way that it's framed in the political realm but you are a uh, let's make the transition sure. in your career you are you, the way you've now saving the world is by being the evil developer yeah. right yeah talk uh, a little well, bit about that transition well, and how that reality right so i realized i was making plans yeah. and no one was building them right and <laughs> so i was you had like to go build them <laughs> i was well first of all i was like you know if i really think this is the right thing i should put my money where my mouth is and go do it yeah. but also like I realized I just didn't know. I didn't understand enough why, what, what the forces were on a developer because they don't teach you that in planning school. Even I even took those right, classes right. and I didn't really know what, yeah. what we were going to do. It's funny because I took the classes too and I kind of knew because yeah. I had as an engineer worked for some developers and as I'm taking the class, I'm thinking, this is not really this what the conversation really is. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I went, I've done, I've been, you know, I basically, I quit my, my other job and I went and I was like, I will come private developer. I do zoning. I will come and I will entitle your projects and I will apprentice and learn every, and learn all the other parts. And one of the, the, the awesome and terrifying things about real estate development is that it's like, it's the linchpin profession of the entire built environment. Yeah. They're, they're the only people whose job connects the finance with the permitting, with the design, with the engineering, with the con- construction, with the leasing and the marketing and the property management. Like to be a competent developer, you kind of need to be able to do all those things. And right. all of those are other f- professions. Like, right. So you're like, right. you're like helping your electrician solve a problem in the morning. And you don't really know, I don't know, I'm an electrician. Like what the heck? I'm just right. sort of doing you some critical thinking here. <laughs> and then in the afternoon, I'm like negotiating with the bank and my, and my uh, appraiser to like right. get the right, you know. So you literally are the jack of all trades. You you, you have to be, ways. and yeah. you have to be pretty good at all of those things. So it's it's a daunting curve to climb. That's what I've been doing for the last three years, just on the ground with a great firm. It's been a, a fantastic mentor for me, um, working on mixed use infill projects and mill renovations and redevelopment projects. And you know, one of the things that I've learned from that process that I would not have ever expected five years ago when I was you know planning school five or six years ago was how much you know. N- Commercial development is like the thing that like liberals and, and, you know, people like me, right? You know, we're, we're trained to like hate the man, hate the corporations. Right. You know, it's more ambivalent towards small business owners, but it's still complicated. Um, and, and, you know, you're supposed to love affordable housing and all these other things. And, and just the realization that the, one of the core pieces of a successful urban neighborhood is, is having that like, you need businesses, both retail and sort of office commercial, like, in that neighborhood. 
And, and what makes neighborhoods attractive places for people to live in an urban context, like, you know, you can compete over who has the nicest quarter acre trees and all that other stuff. And that's, that's like one game. But if you want to play the walkable game, you have to have a really killer, like, retail environment. Right. You have to be able to walk to something funky and interesting. Right. And what, what I was realizing is that all of our placemaking was happening outside the building walls. And we weren't focused enough on, like, how do I get good tenants? How do I get good operators who are going to kill it in this space right. and make people want to be in that neighborhood? Because, you know, if you have a really, if you have that cool gallery in the movie house and the cafe and the pizza shop, now there's a real reason for people to move right. and you get that private market response in the right. residential buildings. Now your residential stuff is worth out. a lot more. And it's a yeah. virtuous cycle. I mean, it, that's the hard part of all these things. They're all cycles. So you got to be able to push on it and pull on it and so forth. Um, so now as you're sitting anyway. there doing development work, yeah. get back to that. Uh, you know the 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 right wing anti government argument of well no oh my I've, gosh, I've lived it takes it. I mean so I've lived many, it it's, you know, it, you, know a year, you know the six months for this permit the year for yeah. that permit I mean I've lived it and so and I think part of this is like that golf is really important right so that golf I was talking about between the build the people who build cities and the people who consume cities if you just consume cities you don't see under the hood much. Right. So it's really easy for you to go and complain about, like, why is the transformer by the front door? And I go and I'm like, <laughs> I spent a year with the public utility <laughs> trying every other solution. Right. And they won. And, yeah. you know, that you try your best and sometimes you don't get everything you want. And right. but if if they don't come into the hood, I look at it like, what a stupid idiot for the right. utility box. And we're right like, there. yes, we agree. Yes, but, you know, stupid, like it was I either that or nothing. It was that or like, no, we're going to use whale oil to light the building. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> and sometimes I would prefer that because it's such a pain working with utilities. Right. Um, so for me, it's partially that I've lived that. And I and I I think it's unfortunate the way like this is where the tribalism thing comes in. And we've talked about it, yeah. you know, in strong towns before is, that, you know, um, one of the things that frustrates me is that because conservatives are the ones who care about regulation, you know, re- overregulation and taxation and, and like fiscal viability that like they're, they're by Democrats or, or liberals are like not allowed to care about those things. Cause if right. you care about those, you're like, you're on like uh, the other you must team, be the other side. Right. And that's wacky, you know, cause yeah. like if you think government should be effective and good and accomplish good things and make the world a better place, like, like why do you want to waste money? Right. Like, right. And that, you know, right. part of that's for me, the strong towns discussion, it's allowed us to sort of broaden the language of how we talk about development and change in cities. And we can just talk to a broader range of people now, um, than we could with sort of smart growth, environmentalism, just this too limited, right. uh, a conversation. So as I've, you know, I, the other thing that development has taught me is a lot of humility, right? It's like basically no one knows what they're doing. Like as a developer, we don't really know what we're doing. We're, we're trying good. we're trying our best to like make it up as we go along. We're making these estimates, you know, maybe we're right, maybe we're wrong. If we're wrong, we get killed. If the market reverses, we get killed. Right. That's it's just a I know it you know, when I was a planner, I always wanted to tell other people what to do with their piece of land and as a private developer, yeah, I still have ideas of what I'd like to do with that land, but it's less like I know the right answer. Right. It's it's a little bit like the the anti fragile restaurant thing. I mean you, yeah. you you've got a great restaurant scene because all of your individual restaurants are pretty fragile. Right. You've got a great development community because all these developers are taking these small little risks right. all over the place. Right. right. And enough of them pay off over time. Where it, it works out. Well, that's, you know, so I, one of the things that's happened is I've moved to the development side. A lot, of, like a lot of folks, of, particularly of my generation at CNU, were like, you know, we're tired of working for bad clients. And so the argument right. from John Anderson and others was like, Become well, stop, you know, be your yeah, own client, right. go do stuff. And so there's this yeah. really awesome movement now around incremental development, about training a new generation of builders and developers because 
Dan Bartman, who's a planner in Somerville, who's working on their zoning ordinance, has said this, and I keep quoting him. He's gonna he's gonna make fun of me for this. No, Dan but, is awesome. But, keep quoting him. But he's like, you know, the best zoning ordinance in the world doesn't make up for a bad culture of building. Right. Like people are still gonna build ugly, stupid buildings that don't make any sense. Yeah. Because they just they don't. So it's like like with strong towns and changing sort of teaching people how to be strong citizens. It's like we have to teach our teach or or train a new generation of builders who have a different way of understanding cities and like get this incremental development thing. Because right now our choices are basically like Joe with the plumber with a pickup truck who's rehabbing buildings, you know, the dentist out of town who wants to put a CVS in and just clip coupons, right? Or like the big insurance company that can only move if they can put two hundred units in a city block. Right. And like n- that is insufficient to make good city. We need like some other operator that is nimble and small but also understands urbanism well enough to get the the value proposition. So let me ask you this. Y- y- you now having done, you know, the the zoner part. Yeah. And and gone over and worked now to to be the client and make your own places. What what would you say to that person that you were a decade ago, what, 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 when you look back at the the zoner, like what, yeah. what what could those people do to have better outcomes? Yeah, no, it's a fair question. Well, I mean, some of this is going to sound pretty boring, but the speed of permitting is super important. Speed and predictability of permitting, I've like lived that now. Yeah, I see how like. Is there a trade off there though? Because the one thing I see is like speed of permitting means that you dumb it down. Do you? Here's the the, yeah. the trade off is like. It seems to me like the trade-off for government is often, if we're going to have speed of permitting, we're going to have to dumb things down and have like a lot of control. Well, so this is another idea that came out of being a, a zoner, right? When I, was, when I was a city civil servant, I was not an agent, right? My job was to interpret this code of laws as best as I could and apply them, right? Yeah. The yeah. agent in the circumstances, not me, it was the zoning ordinance. Right, that was who was guiding development in the city, and I think one piece of that is, and it's problematic because it takes, it it result absolves the civil servants of personal responsibility for like making good or bad decisions. It's not me; it's the code. It's not me; it's the code. I'm just, My job is just to enforce the I'm code, just a and the code through. is. I'm a cog right. in the wheel, and I think one piece of that, and this is more radical, and I've become a lot more radical as I've lived this <laughs> That's life. That's why I like. You. Yeah, no, I'm like I'm like some sort of weird like. Left libertarian anarchist guy now, yeah. I don't know, whatever. It's complicated. Um, We're going to create our own political party. At we need some to do point. that. No, I think, it, I like think it's, the, it's true. It's it, like, I think it's because I'm like you. I, I, I look at these this, this, these elections, and I'm just like none of these people are talking about the stuff that I think is really important. Right. You know, there's like some. I mean, there's 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 relevant issues that that do matter that are. But even important. at the local level, I well, don't especially hear the local level. I mean, no right. one's talking about the local level. But I don't know. I lost where we were. Um, so one of the no, you, you one were of the things just I about say, to say speed, something speed incredibly radical about uh, oh it, it was basically is like the city would have been better off if I just made a decision about whether your development was good or not right and if I was wrong a bunch you fired me right right that would have been a much better solution yes. I could have been fast I could have looked at your site plan and said <laughs> in tw- in thirty minutes or an hour said I think it should be this way right. like here's some changes and and. In fairness, the developer, the developer could say, "Well, and you're wrong," and we can have that conversation. And if I'm good at my job and the developer's good at their job, we should be able to come to some sort of reasonable compromise that protects their market demand interests and our civic interests. Right. Or if we're not, then one of us is bad at our jobs, or both of us, and one or the other of us should get fired or, or move on or something. But it, it, it's chaotic because you have to trust that that person 
is going to, or the group of people is going to make reasonably good decisions. And I th- it has to, unfortunately, it has to be staff because if they're a volunteer, citizens that the they just don't have enough time right they're not responsive enough if you have a board that meets once a month and you need to go to them for your approvals and you miss the filing deadline by a day you just lost a month on your timeline right right i need to be able to go in tomorrow and say okay here's my revised plan what do you think let's figure it out and you know there's a chance people are going to make bad decisions but you need to hold them responsible for that so it's it's a very radically different approach to bureaucracy and i under and the same we've kind of this with the purchasing rules right the purchasing rules on the public sector side are insane. It took us six months to write the RFP and get it through purchasing. When I moved over to the private sector side, I hired a traffic consultant in two weeks. Like right. from from sending out requests for proposals right. to having a signed contract was two weeks. And if, if they would have been horrible and I would done have a terrible them. job, you would have fired them in a, or, in a day. Or but if you week. had stuck with them, you would have gotten the can at some point. Yeah, right. Like, right. And so it's about performance. Yeah. And it's, a, it's sort of that sense of personal responsibility uh, for performance, which... You know, this is where I start to sound like some sort of conservative. It's like, yeah, I think, I think we need to hold people accountable. And I don't, I don't know why, like, the left, like, gave up on the idea that, like, individuals should be held accountable for the actions. Like, right. and that's why I think this tribalism thing has bifurcated the spheres of caring about stuff in ways that are not helpful. Right. Because right? we're sort of, like, getting our brains split. And you have to sort of pick one part of your brain to, like, use. And then you have to ignore the other part. Or you're, like, it's just, there's nowhere to go. Right. So that's, so anyway, that's, like, a long-winded radical thing. I mean, the other things that I would say is, you know... Um, we have this idea of, of urbanism that, like, when you do a master plan, you plan all of the stuff, right? And so let's go back to those older models of plans where, and I call this, like, incomplete urbanism. That's my, my new phrase. I like gonna, it. Incomplete urbanism, because the idea is, is you're going to leave, whether it's 10% or 50%, unplanned. And you're just going to say, you know, user to define here. Right. And you, you pass that down the chain. So rather than having a site plan that specifies all the plantings everywhere, why don't you let the residents plant some stuff? Right. right? Why do you need to control that from the level of, like, the planning board down? Because it doesn't matter. You know, they'll figure it out. And likewise, you know, it's like you, you design some streets and you say, go build some buildings. And it's scary and it's slow and you're going to get some things wrong. But the reality is it's scary, it's slow, and we get things wrong now. Our current right, system does right. that, yeah. and it takes five years to even put a shovel in the ground, right. rather than a process that could, you could start now, and yeah, you're going to make some mistakes, and there's going to be conflicts, but again, we have conflicts now, and we make mistakes now, but what we would get is momentum. We would get a sense of, if we, if we start acting, it's like, that, it's like the street bench problem that you were saying with Andres. Yeah, like, yeah. like, it takes us years to determine that we need a street bench and then purchase it, and in other contexts, you just go down to the metal shop and buy a street bench. And right. then they would fabricate it, and then you'd install it a month later, and then you'd move on. And we, we spend a tremendous amount of our staff time, a tremendous amount of brain damage, we say, in the real estate industry on that stuff, just like endless meetings, conversations, instead of just saying, you know what, it may not be the perfect decision. I may be off by 10%, but it's better than spending six months trying to find the perfect, it's just sort of the satisfice in the right. language of behavioral it, it, it uh, sciences. Seems a, it seems a lot like, to me, like the... The, the process that we've come up with, the bureaucracy we've come up with, is, is in a sense a response to the mass production of cities. And really where we're at now, and, and this is some of the work that you do too, is more of an artistry. It's more of a fine grain. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's more of a fine tuning. And it would almost be like if I'm trying to, like we're in this beautiful building right now. Right. Uh, if, if we said... You know, we want to build opera houses right. across the country, 10,000 of them. Right. We could not spec 
the you know the precise intricate paintings right. and all this stuff we would have some very like generic set of things that would come well, and, and we would learn <clears throat> as we went and, and, and it but would, that's how people built stuff it and, is. and, it, and they even built it in the, in the mass production areas because you got a Sears house like it came right. in a flat and right. and it was a shell and you built stuff on it right so it, it left the assumption of you well you figure out your ornamentation right, or not right. you get it you know right. you figure right. that out uh, and I think that part of our challenge is to is that process of sort of cultural education of like and closing that chasm like the reason I love tactical urbanism is you know it has lots of great public policy outcomes but what it does is it shows random people who live in the city that they actually can be producers of their city right not just consumers right because we've gotten this like this bifurcated thing where the city is something that happens to us by some people over there in some office building right and our only response is to go to some meeting and yell at them and that's just like that's not an effective model exactly. it just doesn't work no, it well doesn't. it doesn't I've, you know i've been there i've seen it it it, it it's not good <laughs> let me ask you i i know you've spent time overseas yeah and i know you've you've done some teaching how has that affected the way you approach this stuff i mean I, I, right. I, how has that made your insights different than than, than it otherwise would have been well i think there's a there's a few ways you know even still today, there are people internationally building like large-scale urban renewal projects, and you can go and see that, and you can you can experience the physical reality of that kind of catastrophic change, as Jacobs would say it. Right. So you can really appreciate how devastating that can be, um, whether it's private or public sourced. It's just the scale and the money is too big. Um, but for me, I think the the biggest thing, sort of being international, is just you know you we get this trap in the United States. Sometimes just city by city or region by region where we assume that, like, it's this is the way it's been and it can't ever be different. And you can go to other places that are great and totally humane, livable places that are not like what we have. Right. And so it, it's like the red pill moment where you realize you can have great civic space and it doesn't have to be impossibly expensive and it doesn't have to be despotic. Well, these are places that on an affluent scale yeah. are quite a bit down the, the, yeah. the latter than us yet have cities that are gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, and and it's one of those things where you know, when, like like traveling and, and working in India and Senegal and Argentina to a certain extent too. You know, you visit these like, you know, informal settlements, squatter cities, slums, whatever you want to call them, um, where it's amazing because on the one hand these people are desperately poor and so it's not surprising that their conditions are terrible i mean there's no sewerage buildings are being built out of blocks of trash it's it's not a great situation but they're still nonetheless building really good urbanism yeah and none, there's not an architect in 100 miles right right there's no engineers and yet often they're building a block structure and little commercial nodes and they're just it's like it's like humans have it like programmed in how to build like a town that, that sort of fundamental it's unit like of town. Yeah, they just right. If you just sort of let them do their thing for a right. while, they would basically come up with the own thing. And we're sort of like we're a little bit we're like a diseased ant hive. Like we right. kind of lost our ability to do some of that because of some like little fungus that's infected our brains. Yeah, our cars or something. So that to me was really empowering because <laughs> I was like monoxide. Well, I was like it's poisoned. Our I was like when you look <laughs> at we we tend to think of ourselves as being super awesome. And I've now been to places where people much poorer than us are are building. You know, they're not they're not like as pristine and orderly and, and sort of like, uh, you know, nice in an upper middle class sort of way. Yeah. But they're really good urbanism compared to what we have in the United States. And, and I, you know, it's basically, it's just a, it's a strong moment of humility where I, I no longer, you know, stop looking at like us as going forth and teaching others. It's like, we need to go out and learn. It's sort of like the theme of this conference, come to the places that are figuring stuff out. Cause 
you know, the, and this is like when I worked, you know, the town I worked for in Massachusetts was Newton. And Newton is the town where like the doctors and lawyers and the professors go to have kids. Right. And so everyone there is like super smart, super engaged, has all these advanced degrees and they're really involved, but they're, they, they have a sort of preciousness about their relationship to the, to the environment. Like if anything were a little bit messy or weird or wrong, it would be like some sort of catastrophe. Right. And, and that, that sort of, you know, tightness, that sort of, uh, holding on so tight prevents anything good from happening. And I don't know. So for me, it's really been that realization that there is a, there, one, there is another way. And two, like a little bit of anarchy, you know, a little, a little bit more anarchic sort of process of change can also be fine, you know? Right. Um, last so that, question I want to yeah. ask you the, you live in the Northeast. Yeah. How much of, I'm going to use the term bubble. How much, but of what? how much of how much of a bubble? <laughs> oh yeah. Here, here's the thing about the north. Yeah. To me, when I go to the Northeast, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I still get a little bit of like the Puritan ethic, oh, yeah. right? Like, you know, he, we've got it figured out. Here's like the right yep, way to yep, do things. Yep. But it's such a different place in, in terms of the urbanism, like the stuff we're talking about here. Yeah. It is such a different place because so much of it was built before. Yeah. I mean, you way know, before. Way before everything. I just bought one of the oldest houses in my hometown. Yeah. It's built in 1914. Right. That would be a relatively new my place. My house is 1890, and, <laughs> right. it's a, and it's a young house. You know, It's like, <laughs> oh, we were doing really well after the Civil War. Let's build some more houses. Right. We, we, we joke right. about our, our pre-war housing stock as the pre-Civil War housing stock. Wow. You know? Wow. You know, yeah, because like my city was founded. It was founded built in the 30s, in, in, the 1830s. Right. My city was founded in like 1870. And so, like, there's nothing from there. No, I mean, it, this is a really interesting question. I spent a lot of time thinking, I'm from California originally, and I've lived in some other areas, so it's, but I spent a lot of time in New England now. My wife's from Massachusetts. You know, it's complicated. On the one hand, I think there's still the sense that Massachusetts is like the city on the hill, and they're like the smartest, most progressive, blah, blah, blah region, which is wrong. <laughs> and it's just hard. It's like, a, that makes like a hard thing about working there because people yeah. assume that. They've got it all figured out. And, they, and like, if you give them an example from like Memphis or Austin or wherever, like they're looking down on that. And I'm like, the most progressive stuff now is often happening like in the South. And right. like these Yankees really struggle with the idea that anyone else could have come up with an idea that they didn't already think of. <laughs> yeah. And it's particularly bad around Harvard and MIT, uh, that particular characteristic. Um, and there is something in the water or the culture that people just really love to regulate stuff. And like the first solution people go to when like there's a conflict over a hedge or like some junk in the backyard is to pass another ordinance. I, I was actually, I traveled around New York with uh, a gentleman and he was part of a, a foundation that was based in Albany that was not a foundation, but like a nonprofit and they were doing development work. And, and so he got a real strong taste of, of our st strong towns. Yeah. And at the end of like this four days together, he said, this stuff was great. I'm going to go back to Albany and see if we can get a billion dollar grant to, to like do some of this stuff. Oh, like, no. Wait, wait a sec. Abort, wait, abort, wait, abort. Yeah, like, did you listen to anything I said? Yeah. And it, it's almost like that is the, that is the, that is the reflexive. Cause the, the thing is like, I go to other parts of the country and I feel like culturally they're, they're, they're very, like, it's a lot easier. If I go to Omaha yeah. and I start talking about Memphis. Yeah. They're, a, they're interested. Or, they're interested. Yeah. They're like, well, what do they do? That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. If I go to New Hampshire 
and talk about Memphis. They're like, yeah. If you go to New Hampshire and talk about Massachusetts, they're like, nah. <laughs> you know? So, so that's a real challenge is there's a sort of parochialism. But what was interesting is you were saying because of the age of the region, as much as, and I, I just recently moved to Providence, Rhode Island, because my plan was sort of, you know, like I was living in Cambridge, which is awesome. It's like a San Francisco kind of situation. Everything's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Everything's, you have all these great amenities, but you, you can't afford to live there, you know, even making good money. Or if you do, you're living paycheck to paycheck, right. making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And you have to ask yourself, like, what the hell is right. wrong with How this? How am I getting that? Like, why is this here? a good plan? Right. So, but, you know, New England is a region, upstate New York, sort of similarly, where there are dozens, maybe a hundred plus small and mid-sized cities that, from a new urbanist perspective, from a strong town's perspective, have really good bones. Like, like you know, their finances are messed up, their populations have declined, their economies are really hard. Like, there's a lot of problems, and we're trying to figure out how to fix them, and it's not easy. But I think, to your point, if, if everything really hit, you know, if we get to, like, you know, Kunstler's World made by hand oh, tomorrow. I'd rather be you could figure it out. Like, anywhere like, else. like right. these these towns, you got we got buildings, we got we got all kinds of buildings, we got you know these are cities, neighborhoods that are we have small multifamily, like the incremental development alliance guy stuff. Like that's what our cities are built out of already. Right. We don't have to like reinvent this. We know right. how to build these things, but it we we have to figure out. You know, we still have the same sort of urban suburban fight that a lot of regions have, where the suburbs pulled out, and you know um, <laughs> we're getting our photo taken. <laughs> the suburbs pulled out. All the, a lot of the money left. You know, it's like you go to like it's like parts like Detroit, where like the metro region still has a lot of wealth and has a lot of population. It's just not in the, the city anymore. Right. And that's true in a lot of New England cities and towns as well. Um, so there's a lot of problems in the short and medium term. But you know, in terms of figuring out how to like have a functioning town that's like on a river that has you know factory buildings and office buildings and residential buildings that you can all walk to. It's yeah, like, yeah. it's pretty, pretty well set up. Right. So it's an interesting contrast. The, the culture can be very challenging, but the physical bones have a lot of potential. So it's, it's an interesting can spot. We, can we do this again? Yeah, I mean, totally. I, I feel like you and I should just be on like a four-month rotation <laughs> oh, where we okay. just chat for that. a while. Um, for those of you at Strong Towns that have run into Seth Zarin on the comment board, or are you, you're in our Slack, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I I'm come by occasionally. Of, yeah, I've seen him. Uh, now you get a chance to hear him, and uh, we'll have him back on the podcast again. Yeah. Soon. Well, next time we should talk about this idea I've been hatching for a long time now called like an urban land ethic. Yes. We got to move beyond just the expediency and the sort of rational analysis and talk about like what are our like rights and responsibilities, the ethics of living in a in an urban place. Well, and I'm actually one of the other things I would love to do that. Yeah. I, I've actually been thinking about like what are we going to do with this crazy election season? Oh man. Because you know we're we're we we pride ourselves we're we're not partisan. We don't want to like da, da, da. start we're that not, fight. Like, yeah. Right. But yet I want to talk about it, and I feel like you know you I and I should do that. You and I are on. We, we probably never voted the same probably candidate. not yeah <laughs> but i think we could talk about this totally. in like a really rational yeah. way yeah um so we'll have to do that yeah too. i'd love to do that and you know what would be really fun is to tie ruben in yeah. and get the canadian perspective yeah yeah i'd love to see that so maybe we can make yeah. that happen awesome right. well thanks chuck says Aaron, thanks so much for being here we need your help if you think the strong town's message is important don't keep it to yourself Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. 
Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.